Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This is Newsweek here in the city. Yesterday, it was the report about the 14.2% anticipated tax increase, which, by the way, I've now heard from a number of city councillors who have said, no chance that's happening. Well, let's let's hope that they're correct. And and let's hope that when they say no chance 14.2% is happening, they don't mean, but we'll take it down to 13.6 and we'll call it a day. No, no, let, let's, I'm taking some of them at their word that they're saying we're not accepting something outrageous like these numbers. Anyway, that was yesterday. I don't know what happened early in the week. I know we were talking about a lot of stuff. Today, this morning, around 11 o'clock, a press release lands on my desk and other desks. You heard Scott Thompson talking about it last hour. I think you heard other talking about it through the week, through the day today. Uh, let me read it. Toronto Rock owner, president and GM Jamie Dowick today confirmed due to a soon to be announced shift in the first Ontario Centre renovation timeline, the Toronto Rock will play their entire 23-24 season from start to finish at Hamilton's first Ontario Centre. Huh. So remember, we were supposed to be having construction starting early next year. The, the the Rock, their schedule goes till late April, always into May. They always make the playoffs, could go to June. Let me read you one other quote from this, from this press release. We are excited to have the Rock play at home for the 23-24 season, said Andrew Nash, GM at OVG, that's Oakview Group. They're a arena developing company and management group. OVG operated first Ontario Centre. Quote, the team is always in championship contention, and we would love to hang one more banner in the rafters and send this building out on top before the renovations begins. Listen to what he said there. They want to win a championship. This year, the championship was handed out in June. They want to win a championship and send this building out before the renovations begins. The suggestion, not exactly in those words, but the suggestion being nothing's happening until after the rock season is done. That's June, at least. I want to bring in Vito Scrow, former mayoral candidate. He's former liberal candidate for Flamborough-Glanbrook, uh, a political commentator, guy we uh, we like to have on the show. Get his thoughts. Vito, how are you today? Um, boy, you're right. It's not a boring town, especially with news in the last two, three weeks, is it, Scott? It is not a boring town, and we've got meetings being, that's what it was, meetings being canceled earlier in the week. I know there's another one tonight that now, I mean, everything is going on. What... What do we take from this, Vito? This is this has been a project that the city really wanted to unload onto private enterprise because they didn't want to keep paying for renovations to a building. It's an important building. It's a key centerpiece of any city, the arena where concerts and games and everything is played. They wanted to unload this, and yet ever since they did, it seems that we've been just spinning our wheels. What's going on? Well, first, a question I'd like to ask is there was a bidding process a couple of years ago, and two groups bid 1-1. One, one. Where was the due diligence? Where was the, the, the diligence, the security uh, check, the whole thing on when this was going to get started, uh, how much it's going to cost, and when we can expect to have the building operational? That seems like a lifetime ago. It was way before the last election. Now we find out, and, and it's not been confirmed, I, I guess they have to go before city council in a, in a couple of days, I think. But Next Wednesday. You know, Rock put out a statement, so I got to be assumed that they know what's going on. So um, what is happening? Who's going to do what? And how long will this take? Who I feel bad for is Michael Andelauer. Now, I've only met the gentleman once, but his reputation is impeccable. He still raises money for food banks across the city. And we basically threw him out of town. This, this city has treated him like garbage 
from the day he got here. And I don't know why. I really, really don't know why. So it, it is a confusing time. I know a, a few of the people on that on that group. I've never done business with them, but they seem like honorable people. But have they got their ducks in a row? And if they haven't, why did they win the bid? It's confusing. Uh, so many things I want to get to. By the way, you mentioned Michael Anlauer. Um, really interesting. In the next day or two, he is going to become the owner of the Ottawa Senators. Um, I wrote this a while back that I, I can't believe with what you said, what you said is absolutely true. The city has not, not the people in the city, city officials have not treated Michael Anlauer particularly well over the years. Now you've got a guy who is the king of Ottawa. The owner of their hockey team is the king of Ottawa. He could, if someone from here, if we had treated him well and a city councilor said, Michael, can you arrange a meeting with any politician to help us out with something? He would be in position to do it. You think he's going to go to bat for a city that basically told him to scram? I, I, I have great doubts about that. I think it's a real, in retrospect, massive missed opportunity. So I, I don't think the NHL is ever going to come here. But if there was, I don't ever mean a that. I don't mean that. No, no, I mean in general. You've just angered an NHL owner. And the NHL owners own their own teams, but they have a say in American teams, American Hockey League teams, in junior teams, in everything. You have just angered one of 32 people, I guess it is, 31, 32 yep, teams. Yep. Um, and, and how is that going to help hockey in Hamilton? I was on HECFI, as you know, a few years ago, and I saw what they did when they took over his ticket um, distribution. It, it hurt him really badly. It's just one example after another. I don't know what they they have against this man. And I don't know why he's so kind to keep coming back here. But that aside, it's the operations of the city. Again, now it's going to take another couple of years. So when is this ever going to get done? If you take a look at that quadrant, that whole area, I know this is not part of it, but the old Eaton Center is boarded up. It's it's graffitied like there's no tomorrow. It, it, it looks like downtown Fallujah. This is Andrea's Hamilton right now. I mean, you take that with what happened Monday, uh, Scott, you were there. And then the meeting before that, like this is Andrea's Hamilton. And with a 14.2% potential increase, I really, I, I was joking with someone, but I'm not sure it's a joke. I, I think that the province should appoint a financial manager. They have the right to do that because I don't trust these people to spend money. I really, really don't. So, yeah, this, this is... Um... The situation we're talking about where today the Toronto Rock announced that they get to stay or they will be running their entire schedule in the arena, um, it's it's so confusing what's going on right now uh, because we just don't really know. There's Again, there's a, a Hupeg, the group that is in charge, the local group that's in charge, says it's going to be speaking to council next week. Hopefully we get some answers. But Vito, here's the thing about that. Do you expect that council is going to hold anybody to give real answers i i just every time someone comes to delegate it seems we've gotten to the point where we don't want to upset anyone so we sort of let someone say what they're going to say and then walk away i think this is one where council has to really bear down and really get some real clarity from the people behind this to say tell us what is going on and not oh it's coming soon tell us dates tell us times tell us deadlines we need to now know what the heck is happening so when when I was on Infrastructure Ontario, and they've had a bit of a pass too, let's be quite fair, there were penalty clauses in place. And we actually did take contracts away from people. You have up till this date to do X. And if X is not done by that date, you forfeit the contract and we move on. 
I don't know what was put in place for this, but it, it's it's going to be two years before things get started. Who is paying the upkeep right now? Is it them? Is it the city? And if it's the city, is there very little revenue? I guess maybe there'll be some if the Rock play there this year. But this is another, um, I've heard the word boondoggle, which you know an old term, but it, it seems like another problem. I've lost faith in the mayor. I've lost faith in this council to deal with anything like this, anything difficult. Um, I, I, I don't see good things coming in the next year or two. I hope I'm wrong. I really, really am. But things have gone um, from worse to even more worse. I've lived downtown for 25 years, and I've never had the issues I've had in the last three to four weeks. Um, there was an optimism. Things were vibrant. I was proud to take people downtown from out from uh, you know outside of Hamilton. The last month, it's like no one is running this place, and it's just a couple of people deciding to do whatever, whenever they want to do it. And if I don't want to show up, that's too bad. And if you don't like it, that's too bad. We were told there was a, a safety issue Monday night, but yet they were able to find a place for fifteen hundred people for tonight's meeting in Ancaster. And then they were screaming about how it wasn't safe. There was more ruckus at a, a Ticat Argo game on Labor Day than there was that night for all of us sitting in the rain waiting. There, there, it's, 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 and I hate to use the term, who's running the asylum? That's what I want to ask because it doesn't seem like anybody is. It is. Um... All right. So there's a whole bunch, as I say, where we're sort of conflating a number of things here. And I understand because there's a lot of stuff going on with the tax increase proposal or the, the prediction and the these public meetings that are being canceled for some loud voices. I'll be very interested. Obviously, I'm on the air. I'm not going to be at the one about the urban boundary expansion tonight, but I'll be very interested if someone yells anything, if they shut it down because it's getting frightening and it's getting a little scary. I, I you know, I very much doubt that that will happen. But this is there's a lot of things going on right now, and and then we you know we cap it with what's going on with First Ontario Centre and the confusion there. A lot of things going on right now that are really Vito, I think, throwing a lot of people into what you're talking about of saying what is exactly going on. It seems like a lot of things are, if not out of control, certainly there's a lot of questions about a lot of stuff. Well, getting back to the arena issue, it's very simple. Whenever that meeting is in the next few days. Uh, they should put public uh, and, and for with very few exceptions, what are the terms? When are the deadlines? What is the cost? Who's paying what? Okay. It's very, very simple. And if you can't do that, start over. Very simple. I, I don't, well, look, I, the one thing about this that OVG is a is a world leader in building arenas. Oakview Group, which has been brought in now to be part of the Hupe Group, that that I think should give some comfort because they have done this a bunch of different times. But I but somehow even they up until now have really not. There's been no clarity. I I, I think so many of these issues go away if you explain clearly what's happening and don't have someone out front continually giving deadlines that are continually missed. That seems to be the problem. Well, but the, 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 the reasoning for that, though, Scott, could be is they didn't know the answers. And, and where we failed as a city is the due diligence. Before you award a contract, you have to answer these questions to the best of their ability and to the satisfaction of who's ever um, looking at this for the city. 
then you can go out and say, okay, fine, here are the deadlines. Here's what we expect you to do. Here's when uh, what it expects to cost and when we're going to have this. And if they don't meet those deadlines, there's penalties in place. Okay, we um, um, IO was was uh, rightly criticized for the delays in the stadium. There were penalties. There were large penalties, but um, there was nothing on this. I don't know who when this group was brought in. I don't know if OVG was there from the very beginning. I, I heard they were brought in, and I could be wrong on that. But how was another group brought in in the middle of the process before it even started? What does this do as far as do people, do you think people in the city actually need to have faith in these things or does it really not matter as long as stuff happens? I mean, if we have issues, if we don't trust, if we're questionable, as long as stuff happens, does it really matter? Or do you think we really do need to have faith in council and leaders to make I, these, to, to, clear, to clarify for us what's happening? I think the deliverables are the key. I, I don't think people really care about the the details as long as the deliverables are understood and, you know, they're met. Oh, and if they're not met, you can explain why they're not met. But when when you're hearing from a third party in Toronto that, oh, by the way, we're playing there next year before, you know, you found out and before the city found out and the public found out, you just you don't have any confidence. So, again, this is a systemic failure. Uh, not just in this instance, but on the whole running of the city. And I don't know who's running what. Now, I know we're going to get a new city manager. And and again, this sounds a little far-fetched, but I think it's time that there's a watchdog brought in from the province, which they legally can do, because I don't trust them to do this. And it's unfortunate. And they're just spending money. Last time I was, uh, you were kind enough to put me on the air. Uh, you, you we, we talked about 160 new uh, employees. That was less than what, a month ago, Scott? It's now 204 full-time employees added this year. That's another $20 million on the budget every year. When does it stop? Uh, that 14.2%, I read Mike Zagarek's report, almost 10% of that 14 is council add-ons. The actual running of services came in at about 5%. What the hell are they adding on? A lot of questions. lot of questions. We'll uh, hopefully get some answers. Again, the uh, UPE group is going to be an OVG, I believe, too, is going to be speaking to council on Wednesday. We will uh, we will find out. Vito Scro, former mayoral candidate, former liberal candidate. Uh, appreciate your time, as always. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. What do we do about classic literature that may have themes or words or ideas that don't jibe with modern sensibilities? And the overwhelming feeling, it seemed, from this survey was, you know, there's other things that we're going to talk about that maybe, you know, we cancel people for, or we want people not to say, or we want them to choose their words. But literature is... It's kind of been a different thing. It's, it's it's reflective of a time and it's it's art. And we're not as comfortable getting rid of books and words that are written as we might be for the spoken word right now. I mention all this because a story has emerged in the last little while in the Peel Region School Board where school libraries are purging, it seems, hundreds of books. Shelves are half empty or more. Apparently, if uh, books published prior to 2008 are being removed as part of an equity exercise, I'm not 
entirely sure what this is all about. Uh, Nomi Claire Lazar is a professor in public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa, author of the book, Out of Joint, Power, Crisis, and Rhetoric of Time. Uh, she joins us now. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks very much for the invitation. I don't quite understand what is going on here, to be honest, um, because I get that, you know, there are some books that are controversial um, and whether we want to keep those in a library or don't want to keep those in a library, but those are the odd one to kill a mockingbird and some other things. I mean, that are, you know, we can have a debate about, but to do a clean sweep of entire shelves because of something not being up to date enough, it's, it's a bizarre thought process, isn't it? Uh, it certainly is. I think it's important to get some factual uh, context on the table here. Please, so first please. of all, from, from what I understand, the uh, library exercise was undertaken in response to the minister or Ministry of Education, which had asked Peel District to look at a variety of things that were going wrong uh, in terms of inclusivity uh, for students at that board. And it seems like however that policy was phrased, however it came down, that the librarians uh, or whoever was doing this call, uh, that there seems to have been some massive uh, misunderstanding. So the procedure that they undertook was, first of all, to clear all the books from the shelves that had been published prior to 2008 with the intention of then uh, checking through them to see whether they might cause harm or whether they were accurate. Uh, and so this uh, obviously sparked a, a big uproar as it should. Uh, there's one more thing we should be aware of before we continue our discussion, which is that today Minister Lecce uh, told the school board to stop this exercise. Uh, but we should understand that stopping the exercise is really pausing the exercise. And so this is the conversation that you and I are about to have right now is really important because we need to think about how that conversation restarts, who should be involved, what the principles should be, and what it means to basically call a library or reshape a library. Well, for sure. And so first of all, uh, let me go to the point about the the idea that they just decided to take all the books prior to this and, and take them off. Somehow, if that was the interpretation, surely there is some librarian who loves books and goes, wait a second, I, I don't believe this can possibly be what they mean, but that's a different thing. But let's get to your point. There are books that have difficult or challenging or not modern ideas behind them, but there are also books that are very modern that some people are not comfortable with having. So who, who, how do we do this? Who becomes the arbiter of what is allowed to be there and what is too offensive or not offensive enough or kind of offensive? Who does that? Well, it seems to me that this is really at the heart of what it is to uh, to have a democracy. And that's part of what run, went wrong with this exercise, because from what we can tell from what has been reported, it seems that the school board uh, uh, or the people who work for, for, for the schools went ahead and undertook this exercise without consultation. They didn't talk to the students. They didn't talk to the parents. Uh, they didn't have a broader consultation about uh, about these issues of of what books should be uh, should be disposed of, and, uh, and and libraries have this really special role. Like you were talking about, how books uh, are are a little different from speech, uh, and they have this really special role in that they don't just contain texts, right? They don't just contain stories, but books are also historical artifacts. They're they're objects that contain. Uh, a, a sort of a history of human fallibility, right? So those novels that might be off offensive, right? That might in, uh, uh, depict uh, injustices uncritically uh, from the past, 
are are important because they they provide students with a, a kind of a historical document of injustice. So if we clear all of those things out, essentially what we're doing is we're creating this sort of sanitized space in which um, uh, in, in, in which only sort of accurate uh, material is supposed to be presented. And then there's this question of what counts as accurate. There's another angle here that I think is really important beyond this issue of what's, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot in the public discourse about what's offensive, but the librarians have also been instructed to remove any material that's not accurate uh, or up to date. And I also think that is uh, concerning because sure. when students are, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, 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 a hundred percent. I mean, it, the idea of we, and we have this discussion in the media as well, where we've had the government say, well, misinformation or disinformation should be dealt with in certain ways. You know what? There, there are times when we believe something to be true or someone believes something to be true and it turns out not to be. I mean, we, I've talked about this before. You go back to the very beginning of COVID. And the top doctor in this country said it would be wrong to close the borders to people coming from certain countries where there are outbreaks. In retrospect, then they said, wait a second, that probably wasn't a good decision. They said, don't wear masks. Then in retrospect, they said, no, you should. Sometimes, you know, when we have someone say what is right, what is wrong as a fact, it becomes it even a fact becomes a difficult thing sometimes to have someone decide if it's really misinformation or wrong, or if it's just interpretation, which is a, a subjective thing, which is part of what a book is for, to get subjective ideas. Well, I think you're you're exactly right. And and uh, what, what I was going to say fits really well with that, which is that um, students, one of the most important things that happens, at least at the high school level, is they come to understand that um, uh, that that we're fallible, that science changes, yes. that ideas change, that societies change. And so uh, preserving those books, or at least some of them in the library that have sort of, you know, that still list Pluto as a planet, for example, uh, be, those also become sort of artifacts of intellectual history. They become artifacts that teach students how change happens and how science takes place and this sort of process of truth seeking. So from that perspective, I think it, it, it's also sort of wrongheaded. And also science is changing every day, right? Uh, so, so it's also wrongheaded to sort of use accuracy uh, as 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 a strict criterion. Uh, so the libraries, I think, have to become these sort of repositories of human error in a way, in order that they can also be repositories of freedom, that they become spaces in which uh, students can explore the mistakes that we've made and come to understand that change happens, that sometimes it, things get better, sometimes things get worse, etc. But if we just try to make the library uh, this sort of snapshot of uh, 2023, uh, we're going to have some trouble. Yeah. So, well, I, yeah, no, exactly. And we, one of the words that we hear a lot, and it was, I talked about that Angus Reed survey. One of the words that's used a lot is a safe space. Can a library by definition truly be a safe space? Or are we saying, no, you know what? You're going to be challenged when you come into a library, if you open up a certain book and that's okay. Well, in a way we could say that, um, well, we need schools to be safe spaces in which students can learn without, uh, you know, to con concentrate on what they're learning. But in a way, we could, you know, we could entertain, we could consider whether books are safe spaces for transgression, whether books are, are, are places in which people 
can uh, uh, see and entertain ideas that uh, they they may well and, and in certain cases definitely should reject, but it, they're sort of like self-contained little um, spaces for for you know safe transgression, we could say. Now, I'm not saying that the place for that is necessarily in a school library because we have to keep in mind that we also have public libraries and we have the internet. So whatever is sort of curated in a school library is not censorship. It doesn't prevent students from going out and finding ideas uh, elsewhere in those broader spaces. So it might be that we decide through these democratic conversations, which should involve students and parents and the public in general, that school libraries serve a different function from libraries in general. And if that's what comes out of the conversation, then that's, you know, that's democracy at work. Uh, but we do have to have that conversation in a broader sphere, not just have the school board uh, and then uh, certain employees of the school board make these sorts of de decisions without this broader public discourse. Mm, uh, great thoughts. Uh, Nomi Claire Lazar, full professor in public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa and the author of the book, Out of Joint, Power, Crisis and the Rhetoric of Time. I really appreciate you doing this tonight. Thank you. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There has been, what's it been, four years now? Five years since marijuana, since cannabis was legalized in this country, recreational cannabis, but there's another kind too. People can legally in this country now flare up a doobie. How's that for reference, for uh, for cliche reference? Flare up a doobie. They can flare up a doob in this country, but not everyone does it recreationally. Some people use it for medical reasons. And that's, that's you know, that's a, that's a different discussion altogether. That's one that is you know, even people who aren't necessarily fans of the recreational thing look and say for a lot of them, well, you know, if there's a medical reason why you need it, yeah, uh, sure. Okay. I can, I can have that discussion, but here's an interesting thing. Uh, since it became legal in late 2018, it, it predates, uh, or I guess it's around the same time, a little bit predates the, uh, the recreational, uh, Canadian medical cannabis registrations are at their lowest level. What is going on? Are people in who need it now for medical reasons, are they saying it doesn't work as well? I don't want it. What is happening here? Mitchell Osak, a CEO of Quanta Consulting Incorporated, is a cannabis expert who joins us now. Mitchell, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Great to be here. This is, I, I want to clarify again that there are two different things at play here. We're not going to, at this time, really be talking about the recreational stuff. There's been a million different conversations about that and the stories written and whether too many people got into that field or, you know, it didn't work, whatever. This is entirely different. Why has, because I, I think a lot of people are, even if, as I said off the top, Mitchell, who, even if they aren't thrilled with the recreational stuff, I think a lot of people are okay or content or fine with people using it medically, but why are the numbers down? Well, Scott, you have to, we have to, as a, as a society and particularly our government, have to talk about medical cannabis and recreational cannabis in the same paragraph. Because we do, okay. Medical cannabis users, you correctly point out, are at a sort of a five-year low. Those are registered users. Those are not people who use cannabis medically. So what has in fact happened is that since adult use cannabis was legalized in late 2018, many medical users have migrated over into the adult use market. So in, in effect, what's happening is we don't have less medical users. In fact, we have even more than we ever did. They're just using it through recreational channels. 
Okay, and you know what? That makes a ton of sense. However, now, and I don't know how this works. I've, I've, I've never used it medically. I've never used it recreationally, but regardless, I've never used it medically. If Do you not, if you have a doctor's note for this, can you not through your benefits or through something get some money back if you are using it medically? Yes, you can. There are some private insurers who reimburse medical cannabis uh, users who come and submit a a prescription from a, a licensed physician or a nurse practitioner from a medical cannabis clinic. But not all medical cannabis users have insurance coverage, and many of them currently right now pay out of pocket. The, one of the reasons why you have many medical cannabis users flocking to the recreational market is that the cost of medical cannabis through that channel is significantly higher than going into your local cannabis store on the corner where you can, in fact, get very often the exact same product at half the price. I also wonder, and I don't want to be too cynical, but I also wonder if there were some of the people who, when it became legal medicinally, didn't really need it medicinally, but found something that was that was wrong with them so they could be able to get it, and now they don't have to go through the hassle. That's not cynical. That's the reality. You are 100% right. And, and many of those people who are ostensibly, ostensibly medical users are getting insurance reimbursement for a recreational use. But at the same time, and you know, I don't, I don't want to be too cynical myself, there's a whole gray area, and it's called wellness, where people use cannabis for sleep insomnia or reducing uh, some amount of anxiety where they don't want to go on a opiate, for example. And a medical or a recreational cannabis product sort of helps them. So those folks exist in a bit of a gray area between a pure recreational user and somebody who uses medical cannabis, say, for palliative care. There is not yet, as I understand, there is not yet um, any dispensing in pharmacies with this. You still have to go to a separate location. Would that change things? If, let's say, Shoppers Drug Mart was allowed to suddenly dispense cannabis, would more people go to a pharmacy because there'd be a, uh, a belief that it was safer or purer or something else? Or are we past that now, where there's enough places that it doesn't really matter? No. Um not to what you said, we're not past it. Um, you know, pharmacy channels, particularly shoppers or Rexall, are trusted places that people currently go to get prescription drugs as well as other things. Um, they're in their neighborhoods. They might have a trusted relationship with their pharmacist. It's a natural place to get a prescription drug. Unfortunately, consumers, medical users in Canada have to go to a separate clinic and they have to talk to a nurse or a doctor it's a hassle, and then their product gets fulfilled through Canada Post or a courier. They can't pick it up like they would pick up uh, you know, a drug they would get at a pharmacy. So it's completely inconvenient for the vast majority of Canadians who use medical cannabis or who could use it. The, another thing that I, I always wonder about this is, uh, and I may be way off on this one, but it would seem that the majority of those who would require medicinal cannabis would be older people. And I don't know why I think that. That's just sort of in my mind that, you know, when you get to some of the illnesses that we hear about that can be helped with this, it would seem to be an older person's drug to to use medicinally. And yet we also know that the 
overwhelming, I believe, uh, last I read, the overwhelming percentage, the majority of those who smoke cannabis generally are younger. Is there, is there, does that tell us that anything about who is really using it recreational versus medicinally, regardless of how they define themselves as using it? You're right on both accounts, but there's a third large group of people who use it, and those are veterans. Oh. It could be first responders, soldiers, people who've experienced trauma like PTSD. They are heavy consumers of medical cannabis, and theirs is uh, getting reimbursed from the government. So that's a whole quote, an entire cohort that are, you know, not senior citizens in most cases, but also not, you know, a bro who's 22 years old and just going to get high on the weekend. We, there, there's a, a gentleman in town here, Dr. James McKillop, who runs the McMaster uh, Cannabis Research Lab. I'm forgetting the exact name for it. I apologize to him, but we've had him on the show many times. And we've talked about, you know, Canada to this point, when it legalized cannabis, he says, there was still a lot we did not know about it. A lot we didn't know. Probably way more we didn't know than we should have before we legalized something like this. Do we have any concerns? Do you have any concerns that even under the guy, not the guys, even while using it to cure or help with some conditions that we still don't know enough about it for all of the things that maybe we're prescribing it for? Absolutely. Um, what people in the industry uh, often confuse is we, we have as humans thousands of years of history of consuming cannabis, but we don't have thousands of years of, say, pregnant ladies consuming it. And what's right. the impact on THC in utero on their, on their babies? So the reality is, is many physicians are hesitant. You know, let's forget stigma for a second, but are hesitant to prescribe cannabis without real fundamental research that proves its efficacy as well as its safety. Until we have more of that, um, there will be a lot of doctors who will be very reluctant to prescribe it. The problem with our medical cannabis system right now is that we don't have enough of that research. So, so people who need it, whether it's seniors or, or, or veterans or what have you, are hearing, you know, information, seeing information on the Internet or from their friends, and they're going out and they're prescribing it and consuming it themselves. And that's fundamentally a bad thing. And because the government has kept medical cannabis outside of this sort of the traditional drug framework, we have a lot of people who are consuming it who ought not to consume it without a doctor's supervision. Are doctors concerned about prescribing it because they fear, some doctors, because they fear we could be causing other harms? Um, I can't speak for the entire medical community. There are a number of physicians in my family um, they don't want to prescribe it until they see, you know, real research that's done according to the standards of every other drug that gets approved. Till they see those research results, they won't trust it. And there are other physicians um, who still see cannabis as a narcotic. There's still a stigma associated with it. They don't want to prescribe it. And to be perfectly honest, it's a bit of a hassle. So for a lot of physicians who don't have a patient population, who have some of the issues that medical cannabis is used for, they couldn't be bothered to learn mm. that much more about it because, you know, why bother their patient population wouldn't consume it anyway. 
uh, talking with Mitchell Osak, uh, CEO of Quanta Consulting Incorporated. Um, let me ask you a really stupid question. At least I think it's probably a stupid question. Maybe everybody listening knows the answer to this except for me. Is there a difference in the content of medicinal versus recreational cannabis? Most of the time, none. Zero. It's the same, okay. exactly the same product grown by exactly the same licensed producer in Canada. Some gets earmarked for the medical channel and some gets earmarked for the adult use channel. In other cases, there are differences. For one example, there are medical cannabis suppositories. I don't know about you, and this could be a stupid statement on my part, but if I consume recreational cannabis, it's not likely to be in a suppository form. But if you're a <laughs> senior citizen and you don't want to smoke, that's how you might consume it. Uh, uh, that would be, you know what, that would be, a, I had not heard that before. That would be a first that, uh, <laughs> for some people. Um, but yeah, sure. Why not? You know, if it works for you, I guess it works for you. Uh, it, does that mean then how many times do we know how many times people are coming to doctors who are just recreational users though, who may be under a drug plan trying to get a prescription that they don't need it? Um, I, I haven't seen that data. I wouldn't know. I would, I would surmise though that Given the, the falling price of adult use of recreational cannabis, I don't see any reason why somebody, unless they really are hard up for money, would continue to commit that fraud when they can go and buy a lot of adult use cannabis for almost next to nothing now. Mm. If you look at a price of an ounce of cannabis, which is a lot of cannabis, you can get that for less than $100 now in Ontario and other parts of Canada. So it's almost not worth the trouble anymore to continue doing that medically when you can do it recreationally. Get the product when you want, sniff it, go to different stores, and have a much wider variety of products. Mitchell Osak, I really appreciate taking the time to talk about this today. Thanks for this. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This has not probably been the ideal week for the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, not great results against Texas. We'll see uh, how the rest of the week goes. Not great crowds. News about their one-time ace not pitching. Um, yeah, I don't know what word we want to use to uh, to describe this one. Maybe my uh, guest, jo- Josh Goldberg, baseball journalist for The Score. Maybe, Josh, you have a good word to describe this week in Blue Jay land, do you? I would say disastrous. I don't really know what else you could say. You listed it off there. I I don't know, short of players getting injured, um, I don't really know how it could have gone worse up until this point. Uh, You lost ground uh, to a team that you led in in the playoff chase with games at home. And more than anything, sometimes when two quality teams, uh, as it were, are matched up, Sometimes you just tip your cap. You don't have it on a given day, a break here. There goes the other team's way. That hasn't really been the case. The Jays just haven't played good baseball when they needed to play good baseball the most against uh, a team that I think had lost 16 of 22 games coming into the series. They just didn't. And it's probably going to be the thing that keeps them out of the playoffs. Mm. And when they look in the mirror at the beginning of October and they're not in the postseason, they should really look back to the, at least the first three games of this series is maybe the biggest reason why they are where they are. 
I'm probably going at this backwards because we we should probably work towards the results. But let me go at this backwards a little bit because the one thing more than even their performance, the thing that stunned me this week, and I'm not alone, a lot of people have pointed to this, is we are in the nut of a playoff run. This should be the time of the year when the place is buzzing. And they have had, what, the three smallest crowds of the year is that just a sign that people don't have faith, that they're not interested, that this is not a likable Blue Jays team? There's got to be something behind that because it's weird. It is weird. Um, I, I know a lot of people look at 2015 and 2016 as the comp to September and why isn't it like that? And it's a little bit different because that team, it was just, especially in 2015, it was just like a hurricane out of nowhere and yep. people really gravitated towards it because it had been 22 years since there was really meaningful September baseball. And then I think 2016 was a carryover effect and they hadn't been competitive. And even two years ago, would they returned home in July and then it was only 25% or, or whatever it was. And last year it was more crowded as well. I do think that a big reason for it is the team is not particularly exciting. I, I think a lot of casual baseball fans, they want to see home runs and they want to see exciting plays and uh, preaching that you take an extra base and you're good defensively. Maybe that, helps the diehards and maybe that helps in some ways win close games but casual fans want to see crooked numbers and they want to see home runs and this team just hasn't performed that way at home and i think a lot of people also viewed it as a summer destination with the new renovations and uh, the social spaces and it was more of an excuse to have an outing and now that's sort of dried up the kids are back at school you're not necessarily as keen to shell out money on a tuesday night in september even if it is in a, in a pennant race and the the diehards or or the devoted fans who are really paying attention uh, on in a concerted basis for 162 games probably are saying ah I, why why does this team deserve my hard earned money and the commute to the ballpark if i'm not from downtown toronto i think all of that is a factor but yeah i really do think it comes down to the the style of play that this team has demonstrated for more than 140 games i think really is probably the biggest culprit i think you're absolutely right i mean going back you mentioned 2015-16 i mean that team especially after the trades at the beginning of august when you had bautista and encarnacion and tulowitzki and donaldson and you go down the lineup they mashed everything. If you threw a fastball, they hit it. This team, you throw a fastball and they foul it off if they make contact. It's just, but there's also, I wonder, there seemed to be a lot more, I don't know, connection with the fans, a, a love for some of the players. I, and maybe it's all performance. Maybe performance leads to that. But I don't see who the guy or guys are on this team that the fans absolutely point to and go, I love that player. It's just, they're just guys, it seems. Yeah, there's there's really nobody and it is all performance based. You would have thought it would have been Vladimir Guerrero Jr., but well documented the season that he's had basically yep. since the beginning of May. There's no real reason to be excited about what he does on a day in day out basis. Bo Bichette would be, but he's playing at I don't know what percentage of health he's at, but uh, it's not 100 or close to 100. It's it's pretty clear that he's nowhere near uh, and he's gutting it out because where we are in the calendar. But yeah, it's not a particularly 
energetic team. Uh, there was all the talk in the offseason about changing up the mix in the clubhouse and bringing in some more gritty business like veterans. And I think that there's merit in that, but I, I do think that maybe some of the exuberance has been lost. And now I've thought this for large stretches of the season. It's a team that doesn't really feel like it has an identity and that's hmm. a weird place to be. I, I don't really know what they hang their hat on. It was pitching and defense, but that's even gone by the wayside. The bullpen's been terrible in September and the starting pitching has been inconsistent, especially in this series. And I think a lot of that can be tied to the fact that they're probably just running on fumes from how much of uh, the load they've had to carry to, to really bail out the offense, not pulling their respective weight. So it's just been a very disjointed odd season. Uh, unlike any I can think of in recent memory and yeah, it, it just it, it ha hasn't felt right really at any point. And everyone's been waiting for some sort of a stretch for them to have. And it just hasn't come. And we're well into September now. And you look at the schedule, it's tough. And it's, it's tough. hard to envision a scenario where they're really just all of a sudden everything's just going to fit into place. And they're going to go on the run that everyone has been touting uh, really all season long. You talk about the change in the in the clubhouse and the and the chemistry. We're going to get more serious guys in. We're going to get rid of the home run jacket and Teoscar Hernandez, who, you know, wasn't necessarily the most serious guy. I guess is you know gone. And I've heard a number of people in the last few weeks, especially as Vlad Guerrero has been really scuffing and struggling, say if he dumps a bucket of water on one more guy's head after he's gone zero for four, I'm going to throw that bucket on his head. Just dump the whole stupid thing and just take care of baseball, and I would be happier. Yeah, I think that uh, I, that stuff never really makes that much of a difference for me, but I can totally sympathize and understand with anyone who, if the team's not playing well and a particular player's not playing well, then yeah, I don't really blame you or judge you if you have a problem with that level of celebration. Play well. Yeah, play yeah, well and, and then celebrate totally, all you want. Exactly. And and I would say that the Gatorade bash should probably mostly be reserved for walk-offs. Uh, honestly, I think just Big a regular moments. win. Yeah. yeah. If you want to celebrate a home run, they have their little uh, fist pump thing. I'm all for that. That that doesn't really bother me. But yeah, I, I think that Everyone's just when when the team's not playing to their relative expectations, everyone's just more on edge and it, it, like the little things bother you more. You you notice the little things more. And that's certainly the case right now. There's you if you talk to any Blue Jays fan, regardless of age or, or how passionate they are. Nobody is going to have anything positive to say about the team right now. And it's it's still kind of funny because they're you know, 14 games or whatever it is over 500. It's not as if they're a bad team, but it's all connected to expectations and how you 100%. expected them to play, where the, they were expected to be in the division. And none of that has jived with where everyone expected. Like No one saw them regressing to the extent that they've regressed in terms of power and nobody expected the Orioles to be lapping them in the division this quickly. So yeah, it, there's a lot of reasons to be down on things right now. It could quickly change if they figure it out and go on a run. Look at 2016. Nobody remembers what a slog that regular yes. season was, yes. but time is certainly like the clock is close to striking midnight. They don't have much or any wiggle room. Right. Left. That was August the 1st. And yeah. now we're in the middle of September. Where, where do you think, 
Uh, let's just play along for a second here and say this continues on of, you know, whether they make it or squeak in or don't, where is it going to fall? Where's the, where's the anger? Where's the blame going to fall? Is it going to be on the players like Guerrero and guys who just have not performed up to where they should be? Is it going to be on the manager who, you know, a lot of questions about the manager, is it going to be on Ross Atkins and the general manager's office? Where does the blame fall if this thing doesn't go right? I think you could spread it around. I think that I know a lot of people will call for Ross Atkins's job, and he's made some missteps. The Dalton Varsho trade has not worked out so far, and that's not to say that it won't in the future. He's here for at least another three seasons beyond this one, but so far um, it's been rough, especially because Kirk has regressed from last year, and Moreno, especially since the All-Star break, has been really good. But how much do you really blame a general manager for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., George Springer, Kirk, go on down the line, not producing anywhere near the level that they were expected to. That's just, you build a team with the implicit expectation that your best players are going to be your best players. And that just, by and large, has not been the case this year. But, you know, he hasn't, he didn't do enough at the trade deadline. The clear It was clear that offense needed to be, added an infusion of talent and they didn't do anything. They got Paul DeYoung and then DFA'd him a couple of weeks later. So I wouldn't be surprised if a change was made there. The manager, I think, is the easiest one because uh, I do think that there are some areas where there are some issues. Some of the feel calls when it comes to leaving a starting pitcher in or taking a starting pitcher out at the right time, playing the right matchup in the bullpen. That's what you're looking for. And you think back to last year in the postseason, there was a misstep. It essentially played a role in, in ending their season the way that it did. And there have been plenty of missteps so far this year. You're not going to trade all the players. That's just you, That just doesn't happen in sports. It's usually the front office and the coach slash manager that pay the price. And uh, I, I do think that uh, one or both of those guys is is likely to be in trouble if the Blue Jays end up missing the playoffs. How much does it, affect that what you just described that Alex Anthopoulos a name that I know people around here love a guy who won the last two years he was with Toronto at least got to the playoffs had good teams has gone to Atlanta won a world series has now as of last night has won his sixth straight division title the guy that you cleared out to make room for Ross Atkins is now winning all the time and your guy isn't would Ross Atkins be under the same fire if the guy they'd removed wasn't doing so well I think there's a definitely something to that. I think he would still be under fire, but I, I do think that there is a real layer to it that the guy that they squeezed out um, in favor of Ross Atkins has had the level of success that he's had. And he's checked all the boxes that you would want your general manager, right? Making and identifying the right players to build around and getting those players signed to reasonable extensions, losing a key player, replacing him uh, with somebody who's not significantly worse with Freddie Freeman and Matt Olson. And the Blue Jays just ha- don't have the same track record. They haven't really locked up any of their players to long-term extensions to buy out free agent years. And obviously, they just haven't had any level of postseason success. He's won a World Series. It was in a year they weren't expected to, but the consecutive division titles, sure, the NL East maybe isn't as tough as the AL East, but that's an excuse. There are still good teams, the Phillies, the Mets, et cetera. The Nationals have been competitive in the past in that division, and they've still had success, the Braves had. So I I do think that that's very much a factor in the 
I would say, if, depending on who you talk to, the level of at the very least apathy, if not vitriol towards mm. this front office yeah. because the, of, you know, the comparison what, is not complimentary. It isn't no, I mean, it whether is you not. like it or not, whether it's fair or not, it's not a good company. You don't want to be no. compared to that guy. If you're Ross Atkins, let's be honest. Uh, last thing, because we only have a minute or so left here. And it is one of the most puzzling, bizarre stories that I still don't know if I know really what's going on. And it's this whole thing with Alec Manoa. Some stories seem to say that he just refused to go to AAA and wouldn't pitch. Some say he's injured. Some say he says he's injured. But do we have any idea what the real story is, why Alec Manoa is not playing right now? You are my your guess is as good as mine. It's a it's a bizarre situation. It it never really passed the smell test from the get go. There was just something that didn't seem right. Not reporting, you know, just didn't something just my radar was up. Just something didn't quite register for me. And based on the reporting that we've seen this week, it's pretty clear that that was uh, the case. It, mm-hmm. it just wasn't a situation that was conventional. And this is but the if, type but of Josh, thing that, if he went yeah. down, sorry, but if he went yeah. down and again, he may be injured, he may say he's injured. He may have mm-hmm. something bugging him, but if, sure. if the blue Jays believe that he went down and simply didn't want to pitch, and I don't know if that's the case, I'm just throwing it out there. Can they bring him back next year? Or is that something where you have to say, sorry, we can't do that? Or is he still a reclamation project that you can fix? I I am honestly not sure. I think that there could be a fracture in the relationship that might not be reparable. I I, I think that there's just clearly a difference of opinion that the Manoa camp didn't feel as though a demotion based on performance was warranted. And the blue Jays certainly did. And the fact that they were where they were in the playoff race, obviously played a part in that, but he wasn't allowing them to be competitive enough consistently to win games when they needed to. And it's a tough look for him. I understand it's very difficult for in any job for your employer to basically say you're not performing to the level that we expect you to perform and obviously the level that you expect yourself to perform. That's never easy to hear. And that clearly wasn't easy to hear either, but just because Alec Manoa was really good when he started his career, that doesn't make you immune from some of the realities that exist for professional athletes. Like if you're not good enough, you're not good enough. I I don't really care what your past track record says. It's not good enough. At the end of the day, you just have to find a way to pitch better. And he wasn't doing that. So if he can't really look in the mirror and 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 see that that is the ultimate crux of the issue and he harbors some ill will toward the organization for the way that they handled it i'm not really sure how you proceed going exactly. forward and mend the relationship to a point where you can feel comfortable about restarting and getting him back into a place where he can help this team moving forward I'll tell you one guy who's not going to get sent down for not being good enough. That is Josh Goldberg, baseball journalist for The Score. I really appreciate the time today, Josh. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. I enjoyed that. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.